And our second reading today is taken from the, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 17. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer uh, one more time as we approach 
our time in the Word of God together. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to gather your people around your Word, and we confess our dependence upon it. Lord, your Word gives life. Your Word cleanses us. Your Word helps us to run in the way that you've set before us. And we pray today that you deliver us from all error. We confess our need for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to make this word come to life. We pray that he would do so, that he would apply your wisdom deep into our hearts, that he would know us and search us and see if there be any wicked way in us. And so, Father, in faith, we unveil ourselves to you, praying that you would unveil us more and more in the light of your glory. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text today, we're looking at Revelation 2. And all of our texts for this Sunday of Advent, they surround the theme of judgment. You can't help notice that as we've been praying through the Psalms and reading the Psalms together in this uh, matchless reading from Isaiah and this reading from uh, Revelation 2. It's decidedly about judgment, and that may seem odd to you, that as we approach the Christmas season, that our texts should be talking about judgment, something that not everyone connects with the baby in the manger. But the message of Christmas is the message of the birth of a king. And he comes as the hope of the nations precisely because he comes as a judge. He comes as one who will set things straight. He is coming as one who will deliver this world from all of the evil that all of us knows plagues this world. And as a king who will finally set up his rule of righteousness forever and ever. And therefore, as we read today, the psalmist prays, let the trees of the forest clap their hands and sing for joy. Why? Because the Lord is coming as a judge and he will judge the nations in righteousness and he will judge all of the peoples with his faithfulness. And we've missed a huge part of the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel as an illustration of and as an anticipation of the Lord's coming judgment. And so when Paul finishes making his cultural common ground with the Areopagites on Mars Hill, he says this to them. He says, God has been patient with you, but now he commands all men and women everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the earth by a man that he has appointed. And you can be sure that this appointed man is indeed the judge of the world. Why? Because he has raised him from the dead so that none of us will doubt that Jesus Christ is indeed the judge of the whole earth. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great expositor, says that every church era is in danger of forgetting one of the critical biblical doctrines. And the movement of revival in any age is the movement to recapture that critical doctrine that's being lost. And at the beginning of the 21st century, we have forgotten largely the doctrine of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, that day that Paul's mind is always fixed on. We must, all of us, he says, all of us, we must appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us is going to receive what is due in our bodies, what we've done in this life. That day, he says, is going to disclose our lives. And it's going to disclose our living. It will test what sort of work we've done. And there are some people, he says, that are going to suffer terrible loss on that day because they'll realize that everything that they've done has been wood and hay and straw instead of building on the precious and enduring stones of the obedience of the faith. And so Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the terror of the Lord, the fear of that day, we go out and we persuade others. Knowing the terror of the Lord, I say to that old Felix, Felix, my friend, let's talk about self-control. And let's talk, Felix, about righteousness. And let's talk about the judgment that's coming, Felix. And knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the somber truth that Jesus Christ will judge his people. Paul says, I pray for the church of God. I pray that they would live, uh, live lives that the Lord will be able to command on that day. And so we find Paul praying for the godly Onesiphorus, the one man that stood with Paul when all of Asia turned away from Paul. All of Asia became ashamed of the suffering of Paul's gospel, that Onesiphorus' godly man stays, stands fast by Paul. And Paul, knowing this godly man, he prays for him. Oh, Lord, may Onesiphorus find mercy on that day. For the Lord is coming to judge the world, and the Lord is coming to judge his church. And I need to say that we need to be very careful as God's people. Lest our understanding of the gospel, Jesus saves me, is actually a form of unbelief, because it has no room for the doctrine of the coming judgment. The judgment seat doesn't shape or influence us on a day-to-day -day basis. I need not concern myself with the day of the Lord, the coming judgment. Judgment, why? Well, because of grace. I'm saved. What need do I have to be in terror of the day of the Lord? My brothers and sisters, I want you to listen with me to Paul's farewell words to the Ephesians. He says this, Paul says, I don't count my life of any value. I don't count my life of any value. I don't count my present life precious to me. I only want to finish my course well. I only want to fulfill the work that the Lord has given me to do. I want to get to that point at the very end and stand before the Lord and know that I have his approval. Paul says, my life isn't precious to me. What's precious to me? What's precious to me is hearing the Lord's words on that day, well done, my good and my faithful servant. My brothers and sisters, for some of us, our lives are far too precious to us. And we do not think of the day of judgment as we ought to think. And the Lord is walking in the midst of his church. The Lord walks amidst these golden lampstands and he has something to say. Revelation 2, verse 1, the instruction of John is to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. 
And the point of identifying the angel in the church here is to remind the church of its connection to heavenly reality. The church has an angelic being as representative over it. And John reminds us today that we're not just some earthly institution, but there's something much bigger and something much grander going on as we gather together as God's people. In fact, much of the book of Revelation is a warning against looking too much like the world, too earthly, too encultured in the wrong way, and looking less and less like the pattern of worship in heaven. And if you've ever wondered why we say the liturgy together, just read the liturgy of the church in glory from Revelation chapter four. The church who never ceases to say the same things, those living creatures who say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And whenever the living creatures say this, then the elders fall down and they say the same words every time, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed. And the contemporary appetite for novelty in the expression of worship simply isn't the biblical pattern. Well, John goes on to remind Ephesus that the Lord is near. He will come, he says. He will come to judge the earth, but he's also present now, and he has eyes of flaming fire, and he is discerning the state of his church. He is looking with those fiery eyes, and he's looking to see how brightly those lamps are shining. And the disturbing thing as you read through these seven churches in Asia, the disturbing things is that the majority are deeply problematic. And some of the warnings are especially stern. And the Lord begins by commending the church of Ephesus at the beginning of chapter two. He begins by commending them on two accounts. First, he commends them for their work and their toil in verse two. I know your works. I know your toil. I know your labors. And Jesus reminds us that the building of the church in this life is work. He calls laborers into his field, not just pastors, but as Josh preached last week, the Lord uses pastors to equip people for what? For the work of the ministry. If you've read Nehemiah, you know that great story of the building of the wall and Nehemiah is used to encourage the people of God to rebuild the temple of God. And all those uh, Sanballat and Tobiah come to discourage them. Will you do this? Will you build this, this, this wall in a day? Can you really do this? And the Lord sweeps in upon the people and he uses them, why? The writer says they had a mind to work. <laughs> And Jesus recognizes this here. He knows that the people of God ought to work and that they are in Ephesus, they are working. This is what Paul calls the ergon diaconeus, the work of the ministry for the building up of the Bible, the, the body of Christ. And there's not a man or a woman that isn't called to work for the church and to toil for it. And Ephesus had got this right. And secondly, the Lord commends them for their, uh, their battle for doctrinal purity. Verse two, the Lord commends them for not putting up with those who are evil, that is those who teach false doctrine. And in verse two, as you can see before you, John and the Lord have in mind self-styled apostles. 
And then in verse 6, he has in mind the Nicolaitans. And it's right for the church to guard the purity of the doctrine. It's right, the Lord says. In fact, one of the reasons that the Lord can commend Ephesus is because that in its early days, who was his pastor? (laughs) In its early days, Timothy, that young protege of Paul, was the pastor at Ephesus. Timothy, to whom Paul urged time and again, young man, what did he say? Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely, Timothy. Keep an eye on the doctrine, Timothy. Sound words that you've heard from me, Timothy. The time is coming when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. But with itching ears, they will fall in love with this present world and they will give themselves to their passions instead of the teachings of Jesus Christ. They will stop listening to truth, Timothy. They won't have any regard to the word of God. What's more important to them is their subjective experience, not God's objective truth. And Paul says they will wander off into the mists of their own fancy. But Timothy, you, preach the word. Give yourself, Timothy, to the reading of scripture. Give yourself to exhorting the flock. Give yourself to teaching the pure doctrines of Christ. And so you'll save yourself and you'll save those who hear you. Now, evidently, Timothy listened to Paul. For years later, at the church of Ephesus, they've learned to hate false doctrine. And church, the Lord commends this. It is right for us to hate false doctrine. It is right for us to hate and to reject the teaching that rejects the counsel of God's word. It is right for us to hate teaching that makes man less sinful and God less mighty. It is right for us to hate that teaching that makes the glories of this life seem more appealing and the glories of the next life seem less attractive. It's right for us to hate teaching that makes much of the Holy Spirit and of spiritual experience, but little of Christ and little of his cross. It's right to hate bad doctrine, why? Because Christ hates it too. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, verse six, which I also hate. The Lord hates bad doctrine, folks. Don't doubt that. And we need to guard doctrine. And you need to pray to me that God would give me the grace, as he did to Timothy, to guard the purity of the doctrine so that when self-styled apostles walk into our church, and they will come. People that God's not called to leadership who think that they are entitled as anyone to guide, to lead God's people, who reject the counsel of God's word and try to move others to reject the same doctrines. You need to please pray for me that I would have the grace and the strength to withstand the wolves. Paul says in Acts 20, here again, his parting words to Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come. They will come in and they will not spare the flock and from among your own selves will arise men and they will speak twisted things to draw the disciples after them. You see, Paul's word came true for Ephesus. People who dismissed God's order of leadership in the church and said anyone can be an apostle. 
They rose up within the church and in their unscriptural, unlettered and rebellious way, they began to teach a false gospel. And it's of great interest to me that in the early church, the fathers were convinced that the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicolaus of Antioch. Who was Nicolaus of Antioch? Well, he was one of the seven that was chosen to be a deacon. From your own midst, men will arise and they will speak twisted things. But Ephesus refused to bear with it. And brothers and sisters, God grant us grace to refuse to bear with bad doctrine. God give us grace to live with holy and bold impatience towards such things. But even so, the Lord has something against the Ephesians today. For in all of their doctrinal purity, they had abandoned their first love. You see, it's very easy to get so caught up in what you're rightly against that you forget what you're primarily for. And the Lord's complaint here echoes the Lord's complaint to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, where we read, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember when you loved me as a bride loved her husband. You used to seek me. You used to desire me. You used to long to be with me. And you're so very learned, and you're so very wise, and you've crossed all of your T's, and you've dotted all of your I's, but your heart is cold, and your love is dull. When the Puritan Dr. Ames was preparing to leave England to Holland, the other great Puritan Dr. Paul Bain, seeing him to be a man of extraordinary ability, he said to Ames, Beware of a strong head and a cold heart. A man's having much affection, writes Jonathan Edwards, does not prove that he has any true religion. But if he has no affection, he has no true religion. And how insensible, he writes, how unmoved are most men about the great things of another world. It doesn't move them. It doesn't shape them. It doesn't change their lives. You've forgotten me, the Lord says to Ephesus. You're no longer for me. Your heart is no longer seized with the great longing of a bride for her beloved. You're no longer champing at the bit to receive that great prize that can only come from me. You're too satisfied. You're too content, he says. You love my gifts more than you love me. And people can become, my brothers and sisters, just like the winter sun. Bright, brilliant, but cold and capable of no growth. And so the Lord's word comes to us today and he says, repent. Repent. See how far you've fallen and do the works that you did at first. Don't drum up emotion. That's not what I'm saying because love is not love unless it works. Do the first works. Act in your first love. I don't want you to tell me that you love me, the Lord says. I don't want you to tell me that you love me. 
I want you to love me indeed. Seek me. Pursue me. Spend time with me. And then let my presence spill over into the lives of other people. I want you to notice, and I'd be remiss not to say this today, that the rebuke of the Lord comes with a warning. Let no church think itself indispensable. If you do not repent, he says, and change your ways, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I suspect that we'd be here a long time today if we tried to count all the vast number of churches in North America who've closed down their doors and shut up shop and are no longer having any impact for the gospel in this world. And we need to be put in this certain fear today. As we hear the Lord speak these words to his church, I am the one who removes lampstands. I am the one who removes lampstands. I am the one who closes doors. I am the one who kills and none can make alive again. Therefore, repent. Do the first works. Seek the Lord. Love God first. Love the maker more than what is made. Count all things as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing God. And brothers and sisters, strain for the prize, which is everlasting life. If you overcome, the Lord says, I will give you life as you have never tasted it. And what you think of life now, even though you're beginning to taste the powers of the world to come, what you consider life to be life now doesn't remotely compare to what I have for you. When the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian was being beckoned to return to the city of destruction, to abandon his crazy journey to the celestial city, when his loved ones urged Christian to reconsider his commitment to a life of hardship and a life of suffering and a life of the cross, he, he put his fingers in his ears so that he could no longer hear their voices. And he cried out, life, life, eternal life. And God grant each of us grace today to do likewise. He who overcomes. I will give him permission to eat from the tree of life. So brothers and sisters, in ways that all of us need to do, let us repent today and let us turn back to the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.